rights, of course. Burl Bearer. <laughs> I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Live, or close to it, from the gleaming, streamlined, state-of-the-art studios of OutlawRadioLive.com. The following program is produced by Magic Matt Allen. I am the legendary Burl Bear, raised on records, born to rock and roll, taking time out of my busy schedule, combing my hair and wondering what happened to my career, to host True Crime Uncensored. Oh, you're, you're doing that too, huh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's an occupational hand. Oh, yeah. <laughs> It's a symptom of a career in broadcasting. Uh, a bad choice. <laughs> yeah. My father said, why don't you stay in structural steel? <laughs> why? Is this all the fun of being out of work? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, where was I? Oh, I know where I was. I was reminiscing about the days when I was in demand. <laughs> um, God, we could go all day on we that could just, We could just riff on this for an hour. <laughs> Mark well, you C.G. Are, you are in demand. Yeah, the man you can't understand is Mark C.G. Boyer. I'm over here in the corner. He's over there with the coroner. <laughs> Howard Lapidus isn't here yet. But if you want something fixed, we, we got... We can have... Matt, this is great news. Our guest today is, uh, is Denny Griffin, who uh, tried to call last week. <laughs> and uh, his new book is about this guy, The Fixer. If you had a problem, you call this guy. Yeah. Promise you, nobody's going to do nothing. Right. Okay. <laughs> we'll give them a list of every program director <laughs> we've ever had. <laughs> They'll fix it. Hey, Denny. Denny, you're Girl, there. it's a pleasure to finally get through to you. I know. Uh, Denny, you were one of our first guests about 11 years ago, and we're both as young and charming as we were 11 years ago. Oh, my God. <laughs> and the program is still on the air, much to everyone's surprise. <laughs> Not the least of which being... <laughs> Those of us were sitting here. <laughs> what a career choice. <laughs> uh, usually, uh, as I've mentioned, every time we've had Denny on the show, but he hasn't been on for a while, if you go to Las Vegas, Nevada, and you land at the airport, there's two things you notice right away. One, slot machines and people swearing at the machines because they're so, they're, they're so tight, you're not getting in there. <laughs> the other is there's a bookstore that has all of Denny's books in it. In fact, I think it has only Denny's books. <laughs> I should remember one of yours. Uh, oh, one of mine was there? Yeah. Well, see, that's because he's my friend. He says, put, uh -huh. put all my books in here and uh, one of Burl's. <laughs> so, <laughs> thank you. Thank you for that. I was probably the one that you put in there is probably still sitting there. Well, yeah, it's your, it's your spy thriller. My spy thriller, yeah, my private eye novel that no one buys. That's right. Yeah, that's my favorite. Uh, okay, I got a question for you right off the bat. Denny writes some books, a lot of mob books, and he's done some classic ones as well. Uh, he has he has friends in low places, uh, hit men, etc. But this time you got a fixer, right? Yes. Joey, so Joey, Joey, how Joey, how did Joey get hold of you? How was he wise enough to? Uh, well. Joey and I have a mutual acquaintance, uh, a fellow by the name of Tony, Tony Knapp, Napoli. Oh, I know Tony. Tony Knapp. Okay, well, Tony's dad was Jimmy Knapp, who was a, a capo, or as they call him, with the uh, Genovese family. And Joey and Tony, Joey worked for Tony's dad at one point for Jimmy Knapp. 
And uh, Tony got a hold of me and said he had a very close friend of his named Joey Silvestri who had a great story to tell. And he wanted to know if I would be interested in helping him write it. Yeah. And when Tony Knapp says something, uh, he gets my attention. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, so that that's how that's how all this came about. Well, you, you I think you hit the cosmic jackpot on this one. Uh, when he says it's a great story, it is a great story. Tell us, uh, uh, the book is called A Family Business, and the family's in quotes, and he interacted with a lot of families. So give us the backstory on Joey. Okay, Joey, uh, who is now 87 years old, when um, he was he was a tough kid to... to Grew up, you know, born and raised in New York City and uh, was living in Queens. And he was in a neighborhood, uh, primarily there in Queens, uh, that was basically an Italian neighborhood. And as such, it was, uh, you know, it had the the family, uh, the the family business, if you will. There there were certain uh, people, Joey refers to them as VIPs. Uh, So when he talks about VIPs, he's talking about mobsters. Mm-hmm. And very important mobsters. And I mean, V-I-M, very important mobsters. Yes, uh, yeah, that would be more appropriate. <laughs> so Joey uh, found out as a, as, a, as a young man that he had packed quite a while up in his fist. He, when he hit people, they tended to go down, and usually with a, a broken nose or a broken jaw or something attached uh, attached to the experience. Oh, disattached. So uh, Joey ended up getting a job in the Copacabana, and after, and that was in the 1950s. Yeah, and I wanted to ask you a question uh, about Mark that. Mark C.G. Boyer wants to ask you a question. I'm Get close to the microphone this time. That's very nice. Okay. Um, so he, uh, he, he went to the Copa because he wanted to wear the tux, got a job as a waiter, and spilled wine and lost his job. What is it the owner saw in him that made him call him back? Yeah, the owner apparently liked the way Joey handled himself. I, uh, Joey says that when he went in for his initial interview with the boss, Mr. Podell, uh, Julie Podell, Jules Podell, he said that uh, Podell just liked him. He, he thought Joey cut a nice, uh, handsome figure. You know, he was in, into fitness and he was superb condition and so forth. So, uh, but Joey never had any desire to be a waiter, but that happened to be the opening. So Joey took it, and uh, as it worked out, he was his first one of his first night there. One of the, uh, the customers. There was a lot of uh, the guys brought in their dates, so some of whom were uh, professional girls, and uh, very nice looking and well endowed. And Joey was pouring a beer for the male half of the combo, and he said he couldn't get his eyes off this woman. She was uh, (laughs) extremely attractive. And he didn't realize that the glass he was pouring apparently had a hole or a crack in it. So all this beer that was going out, it's going down into the guy's lap. And uh, that didn't set very well. So uh, Joey, uh, well, first of all, they had to pull him off the floor. Of course, the guy was ticked off, and he he was raising hell about it. And um, Joey tells one of the people he knew that worked there, he says, this job isn't for me. I'm not a waiter. I was never meant to be a waiter. So he took his jacket off, uh, turned it in, his waiter's jacket, and started walking to the subway station. And one of the other guys came chasing after him. He said, Joey, Joey, you got to come back. Mr. Podell wants to see you. And Joey says, I'm not going back in as a waiter. He says, it's not for me. I'm not going to embarrass myself or Mr. Podell. 
He said, no, no, he wants you to wear a tux, which meant you were in the bouncer stage uh, mm. of things. And that was Joey's big ambition, was to wear a tux working wow. at the Copa. You could have got a so job at the tux shop and been safer. <laughs> yeah, he went back and got his tux, and he was right on cloud nine. Wow. Just goes to show if you live your life right, <laughs> you get invited to be a bouncer. <laughs> you know... You mentioned that, but you know the, the new movie out this year won uh, an award, I think, for Best Picture about the Green Book? Yeah, the guy was a bouncer to Copa. Well, that episode, and it, uh, let me just say that that episode, although it said it was ni- in the 1960s, um, Joey had that exact same thing happen to him in the 1950s. He knows the guy. He knows this uh, Tony Lip mm. uh, guy. And... Uh, uh, Joey said when he saw the uh, the opening of the of the movie, uh, how it was, uh, seems almost surreal to him to see that that same scene where he he punched out a guy who was mob connected. Right. And uh, so he he had quite a charge out of that. Well, I bet I bet he did. I had the same experience watching WKRP in Cincinnati. <laughs> 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 Wasn't where they threw the turkeys out of the airplane though. <laughs> that was based I on a true story I too. They could fly. <laughs> yeah, huh? it's One it's of the strange. Moments in yeah. television. It's strange when you see things in a in a movie or on TV and you know where it came from. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> now, you, uh, one of your other books, uh, your close personal friend, the former murderer, uh, who I met, the hitman, who was the consultant on uh, what was it, uh, Casino or something? Where Casino, yes. Where he did they have his the scene where in real life he murdered the guy, and so they have him there when the guy's being murdered. I thought that was kind yes, of art imitating life. Yeah, that was according to Nick Pelleggi, who did the the screenplay on that. He he said that uh, that he it was the first time in all his experience he's had a guy, an actual hitman, recreate uh, one of his murders, and. Uh, Although they, they of course, fictionalized it. They, I think the setting was in Costa Rica. The mur- the actual murder took place in Las Vegas. But uh, but the details were, were, were based on that on that real killing in Las Vegas. It seems so strange to me. We were at uh, an event in Las Vegas, Nevada, the mob sit-down. And uh, it's a few years back. And I just thought this was mind-boggling. You had on stage all these mobsters, some of them, one of them at least, you're, you're our mutual acquaintance, former hitman. And you also had on stage the federal agents who chased after these guys and arrested them. And they're all sitting together on stage reminiscing. Remember when yeah. I tried to arrest you for murder? Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> and going, this is the weirdest damn thing I've seen. It's like in an alternate universe. Wasn't Henry yeah. a part of that panel? Who? Hemingway? Henry Hill. Henry Hill. Yeah, Henry Hill was circling Pluto at the time of the... <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Actually, his girlfriend uh, got me the uh, the free room and uh, my attendance there at the event, which I tape recorded and played here on LR Radio. How about that? How about? Yeah, do you still have those sit down thingies in Vegas? Do they still have them? Uh, no, I haven't. Well, we uh, we left Vegas about three years ago, so I that kind of took me out of the picture as far as doing those events. But I really used to love them. And were you there the night Henry Hill? Fell asleep 
<laughs> I was uh, here when Henry Hill passed out. <laughs> uh, well, yeah. Let me. Uh, the guy was funny, and, and working with Henry, I, I was always uh, on pins and needles because you never knew what you were going to get. You know, you, you tell Henry our event starts like at seven o'clock, and I'd be watching, uh, looking at my watch. You know, be quarter of seven, ten of seven, and oh, Henry, and then. You, you never knew when he actually showed up what kind of shape he'd be in. Yeah. And there's there's one one night, and again, I we did several of these things over the years. I don't know if you were at this particular one, but Henry came in. You could tell he'd been in, probably spent the afternoon, uh, you know, in, in bybeing someplace. So, and he, he looked pretty rough. And but we had a, a fairly large panel. We had three or four mobsters. We had a couple of ex, uh, former FBI agents and so on, like like you were describing. And so I couldn't devote all the time to Henry to keep him involved. I had to bring in some of the other people. Right. And I'm watching out of the corner of my eye, and I see Henry. Everybody had an open mic in front of him. And I see Henry, his head would start to go down, and then he'd catch himself. <laughs> and then he'd straighten up for a few seconds, and all of a sudden he'd start to, his head would go down again. And one time he didn't catch himself, and his forehead hit the microphone, <laughs> and it sounded just like a gunshot. Oh, great. And you want to hear screams and people diving under their seats. <laughs> we hit, three of the guys we had, they were all on the mob hit list <laughs> as oh. informants. <laughs> so so we, it, it was chaos, and of course that woke Henry up. You know, oh, hell yeah. Like did everybody else. And uh, he assured them uh, that, everybody that we were not under attack and that they could come out from under their seats and so on. See, that that occurred to me when, when we, I first went to that thing, and I think you invited me or uh, Henry Hill's girlfriend did, whichever one of you, thank you. Anyway, uh, that occurred to me. I mean, here you got these guys, some of them are, you know, on the rat list, and uh, I figured, boy, if, if you wanted to knock off these guys or if you wanted to knock off the feds, all they got to do is... Yes, exactly. And then after Henry woke back up, he was he became fully involved. And some lady got up, and she's uh, starting to head toward the toward the door to the uh, to the corridor. And Henry says, "Where are you going, Miss?" <laughs> and she was startled, and she said, "Well, I'm, I'm going to the ladies' room." He said, "Oh, you're not. You know too much." <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> and you know, Henry was a hell of a draw, though, because we had some of those events without Henry, and uh, we we drew pretty good. But with, whenever you had Henry, that auditorium, that main auditorium uh, at the Clark County Library held, I think it was 300. And then they had the overflow room where they had this closed circuit set up, and that held another 200. And when you had Henry there, it was standing room only. I mean, huh. you could count on a full house. Wow. What a character. Character indeed. Oh, and another thing about that. Now, here's here I didn't know at the time. God bless Henry. A poor, poor guy passed away a few years ago. But um, after one of these deals, he and his girlfriend... They came in from California, and they rented a place at State Line just across the border, the California border into Nevada. And they had, there were, I don't know, at the time, maybe four or five casinos there. And they always had great rates. They were always advertising, uh, you know, $18 a night rooms and $16 a night rooms. Anyway, Henry and his girl booked a room at at State Line. And then I think it was 25 miles or so out of Vegas. Mm -hmm. So they were going to stay two nights. So the bill should have been $32. So they, 
go to check <laughs> go to check out. Lisa goes to check out, and they you know put a credit card on file when they checked in. The bill was eighteen hundred. Oh <laughs> my God! It turned out Henry he was got out of the, he got away from the girlfriend. Of course, she knew he had problems with the bottle, but, but he he got away from her and he went to the. Uh, he went to the lounges and everything was on Henry. Henry was the, the toast of the town. You know, he didn't hesitate to tell people who he was and all that. And so he had all these buddies, all these drinking buddies. So they put everything on the credit card. So that sixteen to sixteen dollar a night rate oh, kind of went out the window. <laughs> oh, I bet she was delighted. <laughs> oh, and then I got to tell you what happened. Uh, Henry, when he was there at this particular event, he had recently had a hernia operation in California. And uh, he was up in the room. They, they were going to stay an extra night because he was feeling kind of bad. His, uh, mm-hmm. from the, this, what happened was the stitches broke open from the hernia. Ow. And so he's bleeding, and she packs him up. She says, that's it. We're going back to California. I'm getting you to the hospital. So he didn't want to go. He was pretty well. He had been taking uh, to, the, to having a few nips, you know, to kind of deaden the pain, I guess. Right. Anyway, she finally gets him in the car. They're fighting. He doesn't want to go. And they're driving down the highway, and all of a sudden he sees some neon signs. They're going through some village or something. And he says, get in there. Take, Come on, take the exit. So he tries to take the wheel from her, oh. and they're fighting over the steering wheel. She pushes him away. She gets out herself, and she calls 911. And she gets the chips to California Highway Patrol. And tells him she's got a sick man in the car with her, blah, 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 and that, the, you know, he's intoxicated and he's fighting her for the wheel and, and can they have a car meet them? She rattles off a mile marker. So the the troopers, uh, Chips intercepts them and they pull over and they end up arresting Henry no. for public intoxication. <laughs> so <laughs> they, and they take, they take him into the... They take him into custody, then they realize that he had this issue with the with the uh, the Pop opening stitches, of the yeah. wound from the uh, hernia. So they they take him to the hospital. Now after that, un- it turns out they find out Henry was on probation at the time and he could not leave California without permission from his probation officer, and he never bothered to get it. <laughs> oh God! So uh, Henry had some issues, he, and he asked me, in fact, if I would send a letter to his probation officer saying that um, there was something to, to cover for him leaving without permission, you know, that I would, and that would have involved uh, having to to be pretty loose with the facts, and I, I was very reluctant to do that because I don't like yeah. getting my rear end in a sling, you know, making false statements to a government agency. Yeah, they can, they can do it, all right. Yeah. <laughs> So I didn't do it. In the meantime, Henry resolved his issues with the probation officer. They gave him a they extended his probation by a few months or something. But it was quite an episode. Um, you, you know that that whole thing was was really quite an episode. So with Henry, there was always an element of adventure. Uh, yeah, yeah. He's, and he's, he spread melodrama all around him like an infectious disease. <laughs> he sure did. <laughs> it was always pretty amazing. Uh, and you know. Uh, in the Witless Protection Program, I remember talking to uh, Andrew DiDonato, who was the subject of one of your other books, uh, was it Surviving the Mob? Yes. Uh, where, uh, I mean, it's, it must be very, very difficult to be in the Witness Protection Program because they give you a new identi- uh, ID, but you have no backstory. 
you'd have no resume. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, I'd like a job doing this. You where'd you work before? I just came into existence last week. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, did, I didn't exist yeah. before that. I, I've landed from another planet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, Walla Walla, Washington, which is where I was born and raised, will get a kick out of this. You know, you're probably familiar. The the uh, feds have their witness protection program. So do the U.S. Marshals. They don't consult each other. <laughs> they both came up with the brilliant idea of what's the last place on Earth that any human being would look for a mobster. Walla Walla, Washington. <laughs> so both agencies are sending everyone to Walla Walla, Washington. <laughs> you got people who were arrested from rival families, rival <laughs> all of a sudden, boom, they're in this town of 25,000 people, 35,000 if you count the people in the penitentiary. <laughs> and all of a sudden, hey, what are you doing here? It caused the formation of some interesting new alliances. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Have you ever seen the movie My Blue Heaven with uh, Steve Martin? Uh, Bernard Peters. Yeah, that's based on uh, that's based on Walla Walla and, and him going there, you know, which is the reality of the situation. <laughs> Not one thing, it's another. When Henry Hill uh, went into treatment one time, well, I'm sure maybe probably went in more than one time, <clears throat> uh, he, he was in uh, Beit Shuva uh, on uh, Venice Boulevard in beautiful uh, Venice, California. And for entertainment night, they... Uh, they got good fellows and they, they showed it <laughs> while he's sitting there in the audience. <laughs> yeah, I think I know this story. <laughs> it's a strange world we live in. So anyway, let's get back to Joey. Yeah. Joey, Joey, Joey. How, how was his memory at 87 years of age? It's very good. Uh, surprisingly good. And I got to tell you, we never met in person. We still never met in person. We, we did everything by... By phone and email, and I recorded, you know, we'd, we'd do a, an interview, I'd record it, then I'd go back and uh, and, and and write uh, up the event or events that we covered in the interview. I'd send them to Joey, have him look them over, and if, if I had any questions or something didn't make sense, I'd uh, ask him for clarification. And uh, we started off every one of our sessions with a joke. Uh -huh. Joey's got a million and one jokes, and he'd always start off... Uh, uh, telling a joke, kind of lighting things up, and it was, it was it was really a fun project for me. You know, he was he's really a nice guy, and uh, and and we had a lot of fun. It wasn't it wasn't tedium or it wasn't work. We had uh, we had we had a very enjoyable time. At least speaking for myself, and Joey assures me that he uh, he really too. liked it as well. So we we bonded, as they say, and uh, we had a very good working relationship. Yes, it's great. It's great that you could do it that way. The same thing with uh, Frank Gerardo Jr. and I with the uh, uh, Betrayal in Blue with Ken Urell back uh, there in Florida, probably staying in your basement. <laughs> for those of you with a pool, that was twenty four <laughs> minutes before before a self plug. Anyway, uh, the same thing. Uh, I still haven't met Ken Urell. Uh, I have met Frank Gerardo Jr., who's co-author with me, but we were never in the same room together, writing together. Everything was done uh, just the way you talked about it. Uh, phone interviews, uh, sending stuff back and forth, getting things clarified. A lot of people yeah. can't do that. Uh, you and I uh, and, and Frank and Ken and, and uh, Joey were very fortunate to be able to have 
miraculously the kind of communication that allows you to do it. Sometimes it's difficult enough when you're in the same room with the person. Yeah. <laughs> like trying to pull quills out of a porcupine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it it is. Uh, it is. You know, I don't know what we'd have done if, if we couldn't have done it that way. It, maybe the book never would have come off. But uh, no, you're right. It, it was. Uh, I consider myself very fortunate to have been able to have that type of. Uh, a relationship and the ability to do it as we did it. Now, uh, uh, Bark, who's uh, more familiar with uh, uh, Joey than uh, than I am, was uh, sharing with me a story, undoubtedly, that's in your memoir. <laughs> well, uh, one of the things uh, about that, of uh, Sammy Davis Jr. Uh, night. Ah, uh, yes, the, uh, <clears throat> the, the what, there the, was an incident at the Copa where Sammy was the headliner. Uh, Billy Martin was celebrating a birthday with uh, other Yankees. They had a ring a bell, and some bowlers came and in. And then some bowlers were there also. The base brawl. Yeah. Yeah. Baseball and bowlers brawl. Yes. <laughs> it's the tickets on sale now. Get in early, get beat up late. <laughs> <laughs> Those were. Did he ever find out who that gorgeous woman was who was staring at her cleavage and pouring beer in a guy's lap? That's a great scene. <laughs> I don't think he ever got a name, but he saw her more than once. She was one of the professional girls, so every so often, you know, they'd see repeats, not necessarily with the same guy, but right. the same women would be uh, would be showing up. Apparently, uh, Mr. Podell wouldn't allow women in, single women. Right. They had to be escorted. They had to be with somebody because he didn't want all the call girls just hanging out, trying to move in, make right. moves on, you know, a married couple or on a couple. So they had to, they had to come in as guests of the uh, you know be with a, a male a male half, and uh, so so they would come in frequently, and I I know one time Joey the story in the book Joey said this one guy I forget what he called him in the book the guy's still alive anyway, but uh, this guy came in with his regular girlfriend, and uh, the wife the guy's wife shows up. Uh oh, and she uh, tells the, the whoever was working the door, you know, she wants to see Mr. I, I want to use the word name Gray. She wants to see Mr. Gray, and this guy makes the mistake of not going to get Mr. Gray and bringing him to the door, but he allows her oh. to walk with him into the in, into the showroom or the bar, and of course she was. And Joey said she was one tough broad. He says, "Boy, she come up and she knocked the girlfriend on her ass." <laughs> Jeez. And he says, there, uh, you know, Mr. Gray is as tough and badass as he is. He doesn't know what to do now. He's got his girlfriend out, almost out cold on the floor, his wife telling him what she's going to do to him when she sees him outside of the club. And uh, He's still living there to this day. He hasn't come out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, Joey got nervous because he, you know, he knew this guy's reputation, Mr. Gray, and he says... He said, suppose, he's thinking to himself, he said, suppose Mr. Gray takes whoever this guy was that, that, that screwed up and brought the wife in. Right. He said, suppose he thinks it was me, you know. Right. He said, he takes a swing at me. He said, well, I don't give a shit how, you know, who he is. If he takes a swing at me, he says, he's going down. So Joey ended up uh, leaving early that night to avoid the possibility of some kind of a Altercation, an incident. Because yeah. Joey, uh, you know, he respected these guys. He knew what they did. He knew who they were and you know, all that kind of stuff. But he just didn't take any crap from anybody. So 
His fists sometimes were an asset, other times they were a liability. Well, I got to tell you a story, Daddy. <laughs> I can't resist. I had a very similar situation happen, <clears throat> except it wasn't quite as <laughs> off color as it was. My wife had left town to take our son up to a camp, you know, like one of those camps the kids go to in the summer. I think they're called summer camps. That's what they're called. In any event, I happened to bump into one of my, my employees. I had an advertising company. I said, oh, you're invited to a birthday party tonight uh, for uh, uh, Sherry's husband. And Sherry was a mutual friend. And I said, oh, great. Where's the, they told me the, the club that the party was at. And so later that evening, I go in, and there's you know a group of friends who I know. And we sit there, we're laughing, and we're talking. And uh, the husband says to me, my wife wants to dance. I don't dance. Will you please dance with my wife? And I was right in front of this table. I said, sure, sure. So we got up. We're, we're just dancing away. And all of a sudden, I see my wife coming into the club. Right, I'm facing towards the door. The woman I'm dancing with, her back is, is towards my, my wife. My wife comes right through. I'm thinking, oh, hi, honey. So she just comes right up. Wham! She hauls off and whacks that <laughs> Just like in your story, right? <laughs> she says, I knew if you thought I was out of town, I'd catch you with some bimbo slut. <laughs> and meanwhile, the, the poor the woman, who's actually a friend of hers, is going, what the hell? I said, oh, you, you know Sherry, a.k.a. bimbo slut. And, of course, you know her husband, Larry, who's sitting right there. <laughs> Larry is cracking up. He's laughing so hard about falling out of his chair. <laughs> so he says to her, hey, come on, sit down and join the party. <laughs> this will make a great memory for all of us. <laughs> oh, was she humiliated? Whoa. <laughs> oh, you bimbo well, slut. Today, there'd have been a whole bunch of uh, cell phone cameras in action. Oh, yeah. It was, it was a, I, mean, I doubt there were cell phones. Uh, there weren't cell phones then. Well, there were, except they didn't have cameras in them. If they did, <laughs> if they were, uh, you had to put a piece of frosted glass on the other side of your phone to take the picture. <laughs> <laughs> and he had to stand still for like 15 minutes. <laughs> so you'd miss all the action. <laughs> but that's one of my favorite bizarre memories is my my wife hauling up and slapping ass girls silly. Oh, well. That's one of those, uh, one of those unfortunate things, a little misunderstanding. But yes. It, but in mob, Innocent misunderstanding. Yeah, but in mob parlance, a situation like that can be deadly if things get out of hand. She, oh, absolutely. She, yeah. she could have killed him. <laughs> the wife could have killed one or both of them. So yeah. uh, when, when, uh, why did they call Joey the fixer? Let's get uh, get uh, that, that. Okay, Joey, in fact, when you were talking about the, the, the bookstore at McCarran Airport there, I was, I was going to pull a little joke and say, that's how I first met Joey. They wouldn't carry my books there, so I called him. <laughs> and he engaged in the conflict resolution. Uh, yeah. But it, but but that would have been a lie. That would that would have been a, a, a joke. <laughs> but uh, uh, Joey, because of his ability with his fists and hey, Facebook, how's it going? Uh, do I do uh, I want to guess? No, and, I don't. And, uh, after the culprit, through some of the connections he made, he, he he was a gambling guy. He loved to gamble, and he knew all about running gambling games. So he he worked for the for the mob and and ran some of their biggest. Uh, illegal poker and blackjack games that uh, that they ran in the city, but um, 
but so he, he developed this reputation as a guy who could handle himself, and also pretty much that, that meant what he said. You know, he, he he had the ability to back up things. If he told he was going to do something to you, uh, you didn't you didn't want to challenge him on it or think he was all bluff. So as uh, and he knew so many people. I mean, he didn't know just people with one particular family, one one crime family. He knew mobsters from uh, every family and every stripe and uh, so he had connections and contacts all over so one of the things for example if uh, you know the Shylocks if if they were really ripping somebody off and charging instead of uh, you know charging like three points a week for a, for a loan um, if they came to Joey and said Jesus Joey these guys are you know I can't make any progress here I'm paying three points a week on the on my loan, and uh, I don't know what to do, and they're, you know, I'm a little late, they're threatening my family, and threatening to break my legs, and all that. So Joey, if he liked the guy, or, or felt, you know, the guy was really trying and was being taken advantage of, he'd find out who the uh, the loan collector, who, who had the loan out, and who they worked for. And um, he would then intervene. He'd he called the boss, the, the the guy that actually had the the, the loan, and and say, hey, look, you're ripping this guy off. Uh, you're getting three points a week. Why don't you be a gentleman? Blah blah blah. You already got your money back ten times over. You know, charge him one point. And um, and he would try that. And and sometimes he found out that the guys doing the collecting, who worked for the loan shark. Were, were upping the the, uh, the points themselves, oh, so they could get a little extra. Loot they were out getting of it. a little. Yeah, huh? they were writing themselves their own paycheck, you know. Uh, and it, it didn't end up well for those guys. The oh, guy no. caught pulling that kind of stuff. But, no, uh, the mob feels that any money is theirs. Yeah, <laughs> why anybody taking any of it? Yeah. So so Joey got uh, again this reputation that he could handle things <clears throat> and 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 get a resolution to problems and. Uh, and that's what he did. And people would call on him to come in and, and, and fix things for them if they were having issues. Joey would come in and use his, uh, uh, primarily his reputation and the threat. The, yeah. the threat that he knew people and that he could handle himself and, and get things done that uh, would end up, what did they say about a good deal? That's where everybody's not totally happy, you know, but, yeah, but he would uh, he would try to work things out so the Everybody ended up satisfied. Nobody was going to end up in, a, right. you know, the trunk of a car later. Right. There's a, a fellow, I don't know if he's still alive or not, that's a similar position, Jimmy the Hook, uh, who uh, worked for various individuals uh, in the industry, out of the industry, in Vegas, etc. And we had Gary DeSeef, uh on the show from Las Vegas, who put on all those big concerts in Las Vegas, brought rock and roll to Vegas. And he told the story about after he did Sly and the Family Stone, Sly's manager comes up to... Uh, to Gary in, the, in his hotel room and uh, basically puts a gun to his head and uh, tells him to write him a check for another $10,000. <laughs> and so he does. And then he follows the guy down into the lobby of the hotel where he sees Jimmy the Hook. And he, he, the guy goes, Gary, Gary. He had a lisp, speech impediment or something. He goes, Gary, Gary, it's me, Jimmy. And he just goes, who are you working for? And he's pointing the guy who just put a gun to his head, right? He says, whatever he's paying you, I just doubled it. He says, okay, Gary, great to work for you again. So he walks over to the guy and says, you can take that check and, you know. And, and, and the guy turns to him and says, get him, Jimmy. He goes, I work for Gary now. 
Uh, well, our old mutual friend Alan Daniel Goldblatt, who used to manage the uh, flautist Tim Weisberg, uh, Weisberg wasn't getting paid, and uh, Jimmy made a phone call. <laughs> I promise you, when you pay this bill right away, no one's going to do nothing. <laughs> that was it. Bill got paid, and I used that line myself when my car was twice. It was a uh, 1993 Buick Park Avenue. Yes, was stolen from me in Las Vegas. Where else? Where else? <laughs> yeah, and it was and it was beautiful. I promised the people I take perfect care of it. I mean, it was just like showroom condition, and uh, so I razor cut my hair, put on my Giorgio Armani suit, and asked the cab drivers where the gang people were on the either end who handle stolen cars, and they told me, and I walked right in to the guy, head guy, sat down next to, not across from, and said, "Somebody stole the wrong car." I'll tell you what. Uh, I give you two hundred dollars for making the phone call. Fifty bucks to the guy who brings it back. Done. <laughs> and I said, and nobody. I promise you, nobody will do nothing. I didn't know you were a mobster, Earl. They didn't either. But I you played. But they. But they, I played one in real life long enough <laughs> to get my car back. I did. I got. They actually. What they did is they. They told me exactly where it was parked at a chop shop. Right. And where the keys were, <laughs> and I just went and picked it up. Two hundred bucks gets a lot. Yeah, and but I think really what we got was the Giorgio Armani suit and the razor cut hair and my <laughs> confident demeanor. <laughs> I was not the least bit, you know. Well, I went off my meds. That helps because <laughs> off my meds, I, I, I'm not scared of anything. <laughs> I was this guy that must have been about six foot seven, uh, and I reached out and I grabbed his cheeks and I said, you're so cute when you're angry. <laughs> oh, he said, nothing scarier than a crazy white dude off his medication. We're going to take a 60 second break. We'll be right back with tennis on True Crime Uncensored. with you 24 hours a day on any phone or device and it's all free just go to your friendly app store and search for outlaw radio then look for the red letters on the sign with the bullet holes in it and download it it's free listen free on the road in your car at the beach or in your backyard it's all free from outlaw radio this is buddy twist saying good night from hollywood Hi, I'm the legendary Burl Bear, co-host of True Crime Uncensored on OutlawRadioLive.com, reminding you that when you buy all of Dennis N. Griffin's books, when you bought all of those, take a pause, a deep breath, and buy all of mine. Yes, you could use Henry Hill's credit card. <laughs> That's a, a callback to an earlier... Yes, we know. Oh, yeah, okay. Yes. <laughs> My latest, greatest masterpiece is Betrayal in Blue, written with Frank C. Gerardo Jr. You know, and you Ken written, you, know, you have not written a book in like three years. I have. It's done now. And uh, we have to sell it in the next 60 days. Okay, good. I'm <laughs> okay. about a deadline now. Uh, we'll get to that. In any event, buy all my books, buy all of his books. They make great uh, Passover gifts 
Instead of hiding the Alpha Coleman, you can hide Dennis's book. <laughs> That'll be fun. Well, it's definitely unleavened. It's very tasteful. Yes, six it's six people have got 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 that joke in and half four of them in the room. Right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, buy all of our books. And even if you can't read, if you can be totally illiterate, as long as you own them and you buy them new, that's what counts. Now, back to True Crime Uncensored, formerly hosted by Burl Bear and Don Waldman. But Don Waldman is dead. Yes, True Crime Unsplintered, Burl Bear and Howard Lapidus. And Mark CG. Yeah, you know. You know. Him too. Over here in the corner. Hi, I'm Burl. That's Howard. Howard showed up. He was bent. Uh, how many hours on the on Balboa Boulevard? O- only an hour and a half. <laughs> an hour and a half. Yeah, that's nice. Uh, there's Mark Boyer to my left, which is hard to be anybody further left than I am. That's correct. And we have Denny on the phone. You still there? Did you get fed up? I'm with you. Oh, <laughs> uh, how did how did Joey know the protocols of the mob to be able to negotiate? Uh, we're talking about his book, the uh, the fix with uh, Joey. You know, it's uh, it's one of those mob books. Uh, <laughs> How did he know that? What to do? How did he have that uh, knowledge, that information, that skill? Well, Joey uh, developed it. For for example, when he got hired uh, to run the card games and so forth, one of the things they they wanted to know was they wanted the games to run right. They didn't want any cheating going on. They wanted you know people to know that they had a toe of the mark or they they'd be uh, they'd be bounced. But they also didn't want to lose or get the reputation that. He was too aggressive, or that you couldn't uh, reason with him. For the slightest infraction, you'd end up, uh, you know, with issues. So uh, Joey was actually—I guess you could say—he was trained to receive guidance uh, about how to handle the situations, um, how to deal with people that that you wanted them to know you were serious. On the other hand, you also would work with them. You know, you would. Uh, you would uh, you could you could be you could be negotiated with or talked with so um oh, but at the bottom the bottom line when all was said and done your word and what you wanted done was going to be the way it was going to be but uh you would start out not totally heavy-handed mm-hmm. so that, that, that you could hopefully reach a, a successful resolution um and then you know if, if that failed then you did what you had to do now did he ever have any uh uh, problems where anyone was after him, be it law enforcement or any of the mob guys, or was uh, he kind of untouchable? No, he had issues. Uh, the, Joey, is, uh, I would refer to him as old school. In other words, uh, just like Tony Napoli. And um, they, they don't believe in ever giving up your friends. Joey had a lot of chances where he was questioned, brought in for questioning by um, federal and, and local uh, law enforcement. And he never gave anybody up. There was one time he was in a police station and he was beaten uh, uh, for about a 24-hour period. Um, he wouldn't he wouldn't tell anybody anything. And even going back to school, um, when when they were Joey was in the choir and when they were going to, uh, I think he was 16, maybe at the time or 15, and they were uh, getting their graduation. Uh, the, the, the class ahead of him, but anyway, all the students were there, and they were all moving up, you know, to the next grade. And um, the choir was supposed to come up on the stage, and Joey was really looking forward to that. He really loved that. He couldn't couldn't wait for it to happen. So him and him and a couple of his buddies in the choir were acting up. Joey wasn't doing it so much, but his two 
his two cohorts were. And the teacher got ticked off. They were sitting in their assigned area in the auditorium. And the teacher came back and she says, you guys are going to have to knock it off or else you're not going to go up on the stage. And Joey said, well, I didn't do anything. She said, well, tell me who did. And Joey said, no. You know, he says, you have to find it out for yourself. He said, I'm not giving up my friends. So Joey ended up taking the rap, and he was the only one. He, he stayed there. The rest, everybody else got up. That whole section was vacant, and all the seats were empty except him. And they uh, they were up on the stage. So finally, when it was time, time to actually do the diplomas, uh, Joey then walked up all by himself, and he said his his mother and aunt, I believe it was his aunt, were in the attendance in the audience. And on the way home, Joey's mother says, Joey, why weren't you up there with, with all your friends? You know, Joey says, Mom, he says, I was such a good student. He said, they wanted me to have recognition, so they'd let me come up all by myself, so all eyes would be, <laughs> so all eyes would be on me. So he, that's the way he explained it away. But, uh, but starting back then, he would not give anybody up. You uh, you could grill him and do whatever you wanted to him, and it didn't matter. He his lips were sealed, and he's still that way today. Yeah, he only talks about the ones that are dead. Yeah, he said if they're dead, there's no harm, no foul. He said, but uh, he's not going to use the real names or you know full identities of the. Uh, so they get so uh, testy about that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I guess. Uh. <laughs> Yeah, like I said, I've only had someone show me a bullet with my name on it once, and that was enough. <laughs> I think he went to jail, a prison or something. I never did get shot. Bro, have you told us about that? Yes, he has. Yes, okay, I, never he's mind. never paid attention to me, so I missed you. Right? Nothing new. <laughs> Nothing new. Yeah. In fact, I wrote a, uh, a blog post uh, about how true crime authors get death threats, and usually that's an indication you're on the right track. They're threatening that's to kill you. Chances are. You got a good story. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> we've had uh, we've had uh, a number of our guests. A few of our guests have had death threats, but we've only destroyed careers, so <laughs> it's, it's okay. Uh, no, actually, what? Uh, oh, uh, what's his name? Uh, wrote the book Break Shot. He wore a wire for seven years. Oh, Kenji Gallo. Yeah, Kenji Gallo. He had uh, two attempts on his life just before he came on the show. Both of them failed. And Vegas Ragdoll, you know her. Yes. Uh, she she got a phone call, you know. No, you go on that bro bear show and, uh, you know, your toast, bitch. <laughs> he says, I don't know what side my toast is buttered on. <laughs> anyway, so she's still alive, too. Huh? You, you know, with Henry Hill, uh, that uh, when I started doing events with him, and how I got involved with him was his girlfriend contacted me because she said well, they were coming to Vegas. They knew I was... Uh, uh, fairly Thanks, well known in Vegas, or becoming fairly well known in Vegas, and they wanted to know if I would uh, would appear with them. I forget where they had to vote that was a pizza shop or something. But anyway, they they wanted to know if I would come and talk about the Chicago outfit, and Henry, would, of course, would be there talking about uh, his experiences. Yeah, talked, so, talked a lot about various Jack Daniels bottles. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so so I agreed. Well, uh, if I don't get a a call from what I did, I posted on Facebook, you know, that I'd be uh, with Henry Hill at such and such a location. And uh, I, I got, uh, it was an email, but a Facebook message from a, a guy in New York, and he had been in the, in the life and so on, and uh, Henry Hill was, of course, one of the greatest rats of all time in, every, in, in their eyes. And uh, 
that if I valued, if I wanted my career to go any further, that perhaps I want to reconsider partnering up with Henry. And I wrote back and I says, look, I said, I was invited to this event by the, uh, you know, by the management of the pizzas or wherever the hell it was, the restaurant. I said, Henry's going to be there. He's going to be talking about his thing. I'm going to be talking about Chicago. Uh, so the guy wrote back. He said, oh, he said, I thought you were setting. I said, no, I said, I, I'm an invited guest. I said, so there's no need to come after me. But he, he was not, whether they'd have done anything, it was all bullshit. But he he was not happy at all with me when he thought I was promoting yeah. Henry and, and setting him up on these speaking engagements. Yeah, they, they hold grudges uh, for quite a while. Wow, <laughs> you think? Yeah. Although, as I mentioned earlier, when you had all those wanted criminals who had been in the uh, rat protection program <laughs> or witness protection or whatever and the federal agents who chased them all on stage together reminiscing about the good old days when so-and-so murdered so-and-so and I was chasing him <laughs> and you're going this is just this is bizarre I mean this is like the man in the high tower you know I mean it's this alternate universe here uh, that that was a little bit worrisome. So, but but what, I, what I'm trying to figure out is, is a, a done a very good segue, and I I have never wrote one of those. Is how do you go from Las Vegas, Nevada to Florida, and survive? <laughs> I mean, what well, brought you to Florida? Certainly change. I got to say that. To what made you to think you said that you were old and senile, and you pointed yourself towards Florida? Well, yeah, well, the problem was my back, my wife and I both ended up having serious back issues. Ah. And that drive to Vegas, where we used to make it, like, in, in two nights or something, you know, three days, two nights, uh, near the end, because we did the New York-Vegas thing, um, and near the end of our time in Vegas, it was taking us a week. And, uh-huh. boy, living out of, you know, living out of the trunk of the car for a week, every night lugging shit into the motel. And uh, we couldn't, we couldn't, we couldn't drive. We couldn't do the distances we used to do. We had to keep getting out and stopping and walking. And oh, see, I didn't know you were doing I thought you were just, like, in Las Vegas all the time until it, it got too cold. <laughs> then, yes, exactly. <laughs> in the middle of town. So uh, we, uh, we decided we needed something... Uh, Without without that distance, and uh, Florida, of course, cut that about in half, and uh, so that that's that's how that all that came about. But I miss Vegas. I miss a lot of the action, uh, you know. Uh, but you got to do what you got to do, I guess. Yeah, I was just there this uh, last week. Uh, the Stratosphere has been sold, and it's now. Oh, it has. It's, yeah, the some uh, pub company that has a chain of pubs or whatever, uh, PJ Pub or something like that. Bought uh-huh. it. And, PJ uh, Pub, yeah, something like that, right? or joint? huh? Pizza yeah, uh, they own it, and they changed the name to the Strat, and the they strat. took away the ashtrays out front, which really bothered me. <laughs> uh oh, what are they going to have? All vegan uh, casino now, uh, <laughs> and they uh, have about half as many machines, and uh, you know, let's see what else. The uh, Sahara, of course, became the SLS, where they turned down the lights and raised up the prices. Yeah. <laughs> I heard that. Tighten the machines up. Uh, aside from that, uh, I, I looked in there. Of course, you can't see as well. So I think the working girls that used to be in the Sahara all the time, you know, I mean, over 15 years, it was always the same people. And, yeah. And then they, they all just moved over to the Strat. So I, I, as well, hi, remember me from 15 years ago? We were sitting at that same table, wearing the same dress. You know, you have fewer teeth now, but I recognize you. Uh, 
<laughs> You've got the same hundred bucks in your pocket. I had the same hundred bucks in my pocket I had last time I turned her down. Yeah, I'll get you. I'll get you a quarter of what she used to get. That <laughs> uh, bump. Uh, aside from that, the traffic was just as horrible as always. And um, you know what? I but I was still, as I, I mentioned on my blog, you know, on the strip there in Las Vegas, you got this big truck, and it says, "Escorts delivered to your room." I always want to break open that truck and free those girls who are stacked up inside. <laughs> and, I, and I asked, I said, how do you breathe in there? It's the same way as always, through our nose. Anyway, I didn't rescue him this time either. Boy, that story went nowhere. <laughs> you know, it's funny you mention that because I just completed a manuscript. In fact, I submitted it to Wild Blue uh, about a week ago. And I don't know if you, if you ever heard of this guy. There's an investigative reporter from Vegas for years named Glenn Meek. Yeah. And he contacted me. He wanted to know if I'd be interested in working on a project uh, called Wrong Numbers. It was all about the uh, escort services, the outcall services, and how... Um, some somebody that had expertise in computers and computer hacking and so forth was able to divert telephone calls that were going to the mob-controlled escort services and taking them uh, taking their dates, taking taking their dates, and yep, it was quite an yep. operation. I was so we just finished the manuscript. It's called Wrong Numbers, and. Uh, mm -hmm. And hopefully it'll be out, uh, yeah. you know, in the next uh, couple of three months. So that'll be seven o two dash thirty six twenty four thirty six. That ump bump. <laughs> Another <laughs> joke that went nowhere. Zero. <laughs> but I, I'm familiar with that situation because uh, I was working with some people who were working in Las Vegas, and dates were being stolen, and money. So that's just yeah. the way this business works. If you can steal them, you steal them. I said, well, the client hey. wasn't very happy. Well, was somebody was somebody sorry there was a wrong number? Sorry, wrong number. Sorry. Well, the uh, the, the 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 guys back east, the boys back east, uh, sent out a, a team of uh, shall we say troubleshooters to try to figure out what was happening, why why the mob-controlled escort services were losing so much business, and um, one of the guys. Uh, of course, everybody has their nicknames and their handles, you know, for the mob. And this was uh, the guy by the name of Vinny Asperins Conguisti. Oh, and, and they called Asperins him. was because he solved mob headaches. Ah. And his area of expertise was a little different. Uh, not that he wouldn't use a gun or so on and so forth, but what he did, he had a power drill. Oh. And he would uh, threaten to drill into the skull of the person he was... Uh, talking with, uh, interviewing, and uh, if, if they didn't come up, and I, we got one. Uh, it was a wiretap, uh, FBI wiretap, and uh, this this guy was part of this team of troubleshooters. Is talking to the guys back in New York, and he says, "We may have to speak up." He says, "Benny's well, got a guy in the next room, and he's 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 starting the drill, so might have people to hear." So, so Benny was. Uh, uh, yeah, he he was the kind of guy that uh, could get people to, to tell stuff they wouldn't necessarily want to divulge. I well, try to gotta, use charm. You, 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 you got to drill at your head. Um, <laughs> I'd make stuff up. <laughs> I, yeah, yeah, I bombed the World Trade Center. Just stop the drill. <laughs> well, you're a busy man. Gee, how many books do you have all together? Have you ever counted? I think I've got 18, and right now I've got five and five in various stages, either at a publisher's or ready to submit. 
So this is going to be my best year ever, I think, if everything, you know, if I don't run into any major problems. I want to have five books out this year. So that's that's my record for one year. Yeah, no kidding. I haven't had a book out, uh, what, how was you were saying? Three years. Two years. Two, three, two. Yeah, well, uh, but I got one coming out real fast. <coughs> In fact, yeah, I might get a mimeograph machine and make it. It's going to be a, a, a real doozy. Yeah, that's what they tell me. Those who have read the manuscript say, people are going to be fighting over this one. I, say, well, I hope so, as long as they write checks. Uh, thank you, Denny, once again, for being brilliant and talented and a guest on True Crime Uncensored. The book, his latest masterpiece, is entitled The Family Business, with quotes around family. Right? Okay, thanks a million, guys. Enjoy. Okay. Hey, Burl. What? What's next? Magic Matt Allen the Demons of Decadence, live from the Lightning Lounge at OutlawRadioLive.com.